Welcome back to the Mellow Mama podcast, where I talk all things conscious living and conscious, respectful parenting with the help of lots of great books, resources, and of course, my own experience as a mom. Today, I wanted to embark on the conversation regarding how conscious parenting, living, and other conscious child-rearing concepts, and there's my dog in the background, um, will affect the classroom experience, both for children, the students, and the people teaching. And honestly, to take it a step further, you as the parent who are collaborating with the teachers that are with your children all day long. And it's interesting, and we're going to get into the subject more deeply to hear this from the perspective of someone in the classroom. So I've decided to have Miss Lydia Theobald on with us today, who is an actual teacher, and I'm going to have her go ahead and introduce herself. I'm just so excited. Thank you so much for being on here. I, I think it's going to be a great, candid, transparent conversation. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I'm a second grade teacher in Utah. This is my fourth year teaching, um, so I'm still new enough to still be really curious about the system, um, but I have kind of my feet under me enough to to see areas that maybe we can improve and um, to have experience with a lot of different little kids. And I don't have any kids of my own, um, but I have a lot of children in my life, and I, I really love to think deeply about how I can best serve them and uh, model a life that will help them become their best, happiest selves as well. That's beautiful. And it's honestly kind of a dream come true for any parents listening that do practice conscious parenting. It's like the epitome of what we would hope for if we do make the decision to put our children into any type of school system. We would hope for our children's educators to have the same mission that we have, which is to be curious about them, to operate from this place of a, a deeper rooted connection and place of making our children feel seen and heard and understood. And I think I want to start by asking the question, how would you describe the job of meeting the needs of children as a teacher? Yeah, um, well, it's a really interesting question because when I think about children and what they need, I do think first about their parents. And so everything I do as a teacher is hopefully supporting what the parents are doing at home. And I know we'll get more into that later. But um, as far as what I can do in a school setting, there are so many things, so many different kinds of needs. And of course, we have to consider that the end goal of education um, from most people's standpoint really is academics and to achieve um the ability to succeed in, you know, the workplace. There's all these different kind of end goals, but you can't really get to any of those end goals without having these emotional thing, these emotional needs fulfilled. And so that's what I find myself doing for a lot of the day is um, helping friends repair relationships with each other, giving hugs to students, holding hands while we walk down the halls because they need someone to be close to them trying to help foster growth mindsets when they're feeling frustrated, uh, responding to their stories about sad or hard things that are going on at home. Um, and this is, you know, all within a large group of children. 
And so there's a lot of different emotions happening every single day. It can range from just boredom or some mild sadness to some pretty big emotions, some pretty big defiance, anger. There's been, you know, some students that have had physical reactions like knocking furniture over or hurting other students uh, or hiding and refusing to work. And so in the midst of all of that, I'm still trying to teach all my students academics. So it's just really interesting finding that balance of my end goal is still academics, but we just can't get to the academics without helping meet the emotional needs um, of these students. That's such interesting insight, even just to hear you list those things so casually and off the cuff. It just shows me how common all of those things are for you in a day's work, which I just also want to express my gratitude to anyone listening that is also a teacher that has taught children. And of course, to you too, Lydia, I just think that one of the things as a parent myself with a child in school that I cherished so much was actually the experience of feeling like I could truly trust that the person in charge in my son's you know daily life in his actual previous school almost loved him in the same way that I do at home. I mean, it just like that, exactly like I mentioned earlier, that deeper curiosity, um, a lack of judgment and criticism and shame. It was more true compassion and understanding and collaboration, which, you know, I, I thought was so admirable. And every time I saw this one specific teacher, I made a point to tell her, like, it is so hard to meet one person's needs, let alone one small person who doesn't have all of the same uh, skills to cope with their different range of emotional states or doesn't have the ability to express themselves, their needs, or just in general, healthily communicate um, what it is they're, they're going through or trying to navigate, especially in the classroom setting. In terms of the academic part, right, there are certain things that will come up emotionally just in response to what they're learning or being Mm -hmm. frustrated about not learning. And so I always made a point to ask her, you know, like if she was one, having a good time, a good day, and okay, needed anything. And also just thanked her from the bottom of my heart for loving each child in such an individualized way. And I, again, just extend the same kind of thank you to you um, and anyone else that is just trying so hard as a teacher you know, I think we all know if you're a mom listening, how kind of guilt-ridden the experience of motherhood is because of that very thing, just trying so hard to meet everyone's needs. And I think we, especially going into this conversation, because some of it might seem uh, critical, perhaps, of the actual education system, specifically here in America, or maybe critical of teachers that do have a difficult time understanding the importance of the concepts that I share and teach and that, you know, Lydia resonates with as well. I just want to preface the whole conversation that we're about to get into with the fact that I just have so much love and admiration for people teaching children, dedicating their lives to teaching children, and just trying so hard to give them a beautiful, enriching experience and also (laughs) trying to keep their own head above water um, and meeting the requirements of the actual job that they're doing on the other end of all of the things that you just mentioned, holding hands with someone and giving hugs and offering so much emotional support. It's just, 
um, definitely has to be an emotionally exhausting profession and, and also maybe super fulfilling and rewarding as well. Um, so I'm just really grateful and thankful for you to describe all of that. When it comes to the um, concept of conscious teaching, when we discuss recording this podcast, I like that you just blatantly called it that because I was going to say, how do we implement and practice conscious child rearing in the classroom? But it's so nice and kind of black and white to just call it what it is, conscious teaching. Um, would you say you found that it can be a bit controversial to introduce these concepts or try to actually practice them in real time? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I feel like behaviorism is kind of the foundation of public school systems in so many ways, um, in big ways from having school stores that are funded and staffed by the PTA all the way down to just the language that teachers unconsciously use. Um, you know, as I'm passing classes in the hallway, I hear just good job and thank you for walking quietly and all all the things that are not necessarily, they're not people trying to use behaviorism, but it's just unconscious at this point. It's just kind of the default. Um, and last year at the end of the school year, my principal funded a, a conference trip for some of the teachers at the school and I got to go hear some different presenters and I listened to Mike Anderson, who is one of my favorite voices in education. Um, he is all about leaving extrinsic motivation behind. He has some really great books and resources. And when I came back, I shared a lot of what I had learned with my principal and a few other teachers. And there was literally no response from them. Like we, we each kind of shared something we had learned and everything else was kind of responded to. And my principal just didn't even respond to what I had said. And I had talked for, for a good, you know, three to five minutes and sent notes out and everything. And I just never heard anything back from my principal about it. And anytime I've had conversations with teachers, there seems to be this openness like, hmm, could that work? But it's just been uh, steeped in behaviorism for so long that I just think teachers don't know how else to do it. Um, and I actually just took an online course or I started an online course provided by my district called Effective Teacher Training. And it was all about behavior management. And it really was just 100% behaviorism. So I didn't end up finishing the course. But it just was kind of sad to me that that was the main, that was the only paradigm that we have available to us as teachers. Um, and so I just think that anytime I've brought it up to other teachers, it's not that they outrightly reject the ideas most of the time. But mostly it's just that it doesn't seem possible to break out of the system of behaviorism because we've gotten used to the idea that kids aren't intrinsically motivated by learning. And so why would we why would we try to make that happen when there are all these other kinds of rewards that kids are motivated by? And so of course that's what we're going to lean towards. Um, and I think there are some teachers that when I've kind of talked about it, they do outrightly reject it and they say like, that's just, that's really silly and that's not how humans work. Humans need rewards. And they always say the idea, well, why do you go to work? Isn't it to make money? And I think, no, I, I don't go to work to make money. I need money and I'm going to find a job because I need money. But but that's not why I became a teacher. Obviously, that's not why I show up every day. And so I just think it's just so in the background for us. Behaviorism is just so um, baked into the system that 
to think of doing it a different way does feel pretty improbable to consider for most teachers. Thank you for all of that. I, I think one of the main things that I like to point out when it comes to the responses, especially again, for anyone listening, that's like, well, yeah, I work in a school environment and it does seem improbable. It does seem almost impossible to work from a conscious teaching perspective when I have an entire range of needs to meet and lots of children that are not raised with that philosophy and that really respond to behaviorist tactics. It can seem, I'm sure, very discouraging to even present that idea. So I first of all want to acknowledge that, but also I want to point out what I like to point out often in all of the things that I share, and that is that most of the time that we reject any idea, it's because we're afraid. We have this subconscious preconditioned notion of fear that anything that's foreign to us that's new or a different approach than we're already taking, regardless if our current approach is actually effective, it's, if it's working well, if people are thriving in their jobs as teachers, if, if the students are thriving in the classroom, feeling connected with, loving the process of learning, we don't care about that because we're too focused on, again, our subconscious fear. Well, what would that even look like? Is that even possible? And the other fears that many, many people, uh, parents and teachers alike, I think, experience when it comes to, uh, you know, for example, a lot of people will watch my content and say that I am going to produce snowflake children. (laughs) It's a concept or a phrase that I've never even really heard until the last couple of years because of I think TikTok is where I saw this comment the most on my work. <laughs> this, this is going to create snowflake children who have no backbone, who are, you know, just like detrimental to society. And I completely understand that fear. I completely understand that discomfort with something new, a different perspective, especially when you really have a job to do in the classroom, right? And like you're trying to meet all kinds of other, you know, different uh, quotas, what's the word, Um, just performative measures as a teacher, right? And like making sure that your students are on par with certain things. Um, So there is this sort of quiet pressure, like, well, do I even have time? I'm sure to change things up, like to try to do something differently when there are already these existing expectations for my classroom and for my performance as a teacher. So I just want to acknowledge that I understand all of those fears. I totally get um, that, that thought process, like, oh, we're going to be crippling children and we're going to be distracting them from what needs to be prioritized in the classroom, which is math, science, reading, right? Just the academics. But I really like that you pointed out that it's really quite impossible to even be in a state of learning, especially new concepts or concepts that are maybe challenging for a child to understand if they're in a dysregulated state, even if they're in a state of boredom or just a lack of interest, or, or like you said, extreme dysregulation where someone is uh, disrupting the other, the state, emotional state of the other children in the classroom. It's almost, in my opinion, uh, scarier to think that 
not not prioritizing the actual needs, um, emotional and mental health needs of children in the classroom can be an actual distraction and disruption to the real learning and intrinsically motivated desire to learn that could be taking place. It's really stripping us of an opportunity and stripping our children of the opportunity for deeper learning, in my humble opinion. Um, but when it comes to those those fears, I also like to point out that when when we actually give our children and ourselves for that matter, the actual tools to deal with the inevitable ebbs and flows of the human experience in a healthy way, we are less likely to operate in fight or flight in that survival state. And our brain is actually working where it's supposed to be working. We really can't learn anything in that survival state because the priority of our brain is just surviving, (laughs) especially for a second grade student like what you're teaching, Lydia. I think um, I'm sure that's really apparent to you. It's like evident. Well, like nothing can be really done when we have a major disruption happening in terms of emotional regulation needs, or even just if we're if we are trying to make sure we have this focused, um, individualized attention with each student in the classroom. Even if one person's having a hard time, you know, if we didn't prioritize their emotional well-being and just forced information on them, it could be very easy to start blaming the child labeling them, shaming them, and trying to use more manipulation tactics, which is just going to create long-term suffering and low self-esteem. And not just for the student, but also I think for the parent. Um, So all of that, just wanted to, (laughs) I was going to briefly touch on it, but I think it needs to be kind of dived into. And um, I would love to also talk about the concept of behaviorism begetting more behaviorism you sort of touched on that a little bit but have you noticed uh, we mentioned when we spoke before this podcast the difference in having a larger group of students less hands on deck and what that did for your ability to actually practice conscious teaching and how that made the experience different Um, would you touch on both that and also how you notice utilizing behaviorist tactics and and the impact that has on needing to do it more, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So um, thinking about the numbers first, I actually have a really small class this year. Um, the past three years I was doing a dual language immersion class, which means, and the way my school does it is we have two classes that switch halfway through the day. So there would be one class would be with the Spanish teacher in the morning while the other class was with me learning the stuff in English and then they would switch. So the past three years, I've had close to 60 students each year, um, which definitely it, it was, you know, overstimulating for me as an educator, hard for me to stay completely regulated and I would say I'm a very even-tempered person and I never you know lost my cool but just kind of ran out of this ran out of emotional steam pretty often um and it was really hard to to give each student the attention that I really felt they needed um this year I have a class of only 15 kids because of we had just over the amount 
um, just over the maximum for one class. And so they split the, the really big class I would have had into two classes. And so I have a really small class and it is a completely different experience because I am able to spend moments of one-on-one time with every student every single day. And it feels like a totally different type of community um, in my other class setting with with 30, almost 30 kids in each class. There were a few kids that kind of demanded that attention every day. And I mean demand in the sense not that there's anything wrong with it, but just that they it was more urgent for them to receive it than other students because of their dysregulation every day. And so they were the ones that got more connection and attention from me every single day. Um, and having a class of 15 means that every student is getting one-on-one connection from me every single day. And that is so incredible. Um, and then in terms of behaviorism be getting more, it's definitely true. And, and I think about it if you zoom out and think about a child moving through preschool all the way up to high school and then college, when I talk to high school teachers, and I know a handful, I don't, I don't teach high school, so I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I've heard from several high school teachers that they feel that students' motivation is lower and lower every single year. And it just makes sense to me that that's the case because we're born with such beautiful, rich, intrinsic motivation to learn and to live. And when we provide extrinsic motivators, we know from research that it replaces the intrinsic motivation in a lot of cases. Um, And so if every year we're giving students rewards for positive behavior or even worse, maybe, maybe it's just as bad, but even worse for academic behavior, academic performance, then those things are no longer internally rewarding for them. And so by the time they get to high school, it makes sense that they are just expecting that extrinsic feedback instead of um, deepening their love for learning every single year. And so that just makes sense. And I've seen it on a smaller scale with my own students. When I have um, dipped into some of those behaviorist tactics, I had a student, several students two years ago, when I just thought, okay, I'll just try these strategies that are being suggested to me where I I would do a little prize card um, where students would get a point every time they were doing an on-task behavior and then they would get a small prize once they had 10 points. And the behavior did slightly improve, but it was only within this context of this desperation for the reward. And there was no sense of why does this behavior matter? what skills do I need to uh, do this behavior? And it just became about getting the reward and and it didn't really seem to help long-term. Um, and so it just makes sense that the more you do it, the more that students become attuned to that kind of extrinsic motivation and their intrinsic motivation continues to wane, which just feels like the saddest thing to, to think about students that that's happened to. And I think that is a lot of students, probably the majority of students that are kind of going through the system right now, um, to some degree, have have had that happen to them. Thank you so much. I mean, everything that you're saying, I'm just nodding so hard. Um, I really, I, I want to take a moment to emphasize a couple of the things that you said that really stood out to me. The first being the community aspect, when you were able to have at least a smaller, more intimate group, 
you mentioned the word community and uh, it reminded me of this quote from the book, Alfie Cohn, one of his books, Alfie Cohn wrote Punished by Rewards. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've read that book, but it's obviously very relevant to this conversation. Um, and we'll have to also share the other author you mentioned because I haven't read his work. So I'm really looking forward to that. But he wrote, people will typically be more enthusiastic where they feel a sense of belonging and see themselves as part of a community than they will in a workplace in which each person is left to his own devices. And I think that, again, it does not just affect the teacher to be able to have um, more resources, more, and that could be just be time and energy to meet the needs of students. Um, Again, just showing compassion to those of you in the field of education, um, just recognizing that sometimes you are just at max capacity and it is a really hard job. I mean, again, anyone that is a mother listening (laughs) knows that meeting the needs of one child can be a really taxing, intense uh, endeavor throughout the day, especially depending on our own met and unmet needs, our own emotional state, the things going on in our environment, in our lives, in our relationships. Um, So again, just extending some compassion and understanding to, you know, anyone that is in this environment, a teaching environment, and just wanting so badly to do the very best job that they can, but feeling pretty tapped out in terms of any resources, but especially their own resources that they're being asked for all day long. Um, But also, on the flip side of that, how beautiful um, and enriching to have that experience of really seeing in real time the impact of that feeling of belonging and community that can happen in a classroom. It was just so nice to hear you use that exact uh, word to describe it. So that's nice. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was in regard to how children are affected even by positive reinforcement. So many people are very up in arms, like we you talked about. People can get very defensive about this methodology, thinking there's absolutely nothing wrong with rewards, the gold stars, the charts, the prize baskets. And it can get so sticky here because people that are in that fear-based mindset that aren't willing to simply listen and be open and objective <laughs> during this conversation would would maybe argue, oh, I turned out just fine. That's obviously mm-hmm. like the most common argument. But also the the argument of I don't think it's hurting people to get a prize. I don't I think some kids have no choice. Like that's the only way a teacher is going to get them to learn something. This is actually an argument I heard pretty recently from someone very close to me. And I think And I would love to hear your perspective, but I think I want to emphasize what you said about one, the more we rely on the reward being some sort of extrinsic motivator, as opposed to being the learning that's happening, (laughs) like we're, we're learning, we're growing. That is the reward. We don't need to get a pizza party or a sticker or a prize for that. This is a beautiful a God-given opportunity that we have as individuals to learn and to grow and to hone new skills. I mean, it's just so disheartening that we've been conditioned for so long, so many of us, that, you know, unless there's something in it for me, it's not worth doing, not even realizing that there is something in it for you (laughs) all the time to be learning and growing in new ways. Um, But also, 
that mindset is something that I think the fear mindset people would also be afraid of that sort of, um, and I hate labeling it like self-centered because it's not some sort of negative characteristic. It's been conditioned in us and conditioned in the students that are operating in this environment. Um, but that sort of what's in it for me mentality where, like you said, the child doesn't even have any real concern or understanding for why they do what they do, why they behave the way they behave, why they think what they think, why they're learning what they're learning. It's all about what's in it for them and also what's what the other thing is, whatever the prize is. And unfortunately, sometimes that can even be, um, you mentioned just positive phrases that seem like warm and fuzzy on the outside, but are actually kind of like backhanded manipulative tactics, behaviorist tactics, um, just like, thank you for doing this, right? With that tone of, but if you didn't, like there would be consequences, you, there would be a punishment involved, or you would be shamed, or you would be bad. Um, all of these things impact our children's self-esteem too. But I think the biggest thing is understanding what we're actually teaching with behaviorist tactics. Are our children actually learning what we want them to learn on a deeper level? Or are they just becoming performative? And as you said, and as your you know counterparts, your high school teacher friends or people that you've met have mentioned, you know, just seeing that decline in intrinsic motivation and overall interest for learning. I mean, how how sad is that <laughs> to think that the the more you know, I guess knowledgeable we become or the easier it is for actually for us to actually obtain really great like vast amounts of new information we're not really inspired to do so um i just think that's all super important to consider if you're someone listening who is like this just seems so backward like of course we need to use those things of course that's no big deal um, we're looking at not just fine we want to raise the standard i want i don't want just fine for students. I want amazing. I want amazing for teachers as well. Um, so I would love, I would love any thoughts that you have on all of that and any feedback, if you have anything that you want to add as well. Yeah. Just thinking about what you were saying about um, the idea that there might be some students that need that kind of behaviorist strategy, that's something I, I'm still really wrestling with, and I don't have an answer, but, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, actually. I, I do feel like there are some students, and I think you might have mentioned um, a conversation you had when we talked before, um, some students with special needs or just really, really intense patterns of dysregulation, um, or maybe it's because they've, they've been, um, they've used, they've they've been, what am I trying to say? Behaviorism was used on them so much in the past that it seems like that's the only thing that they'll respond to. Um, and I have, like, I have a couple students every year. I have two students this year that have been in that, that category where, where they've been so dysregulated. And I start with, of course, relationships and teaching the skills. And then it gets to the point where it seems like they they might only respond to a point card or something. And internally, I'm fighting against it so much 
Um, but it seems like maybe this will work temporarily to get them experiencing the kind of behavior um, to kind of show them when you are working towards something else, it turns out you can do this behavior and then let's slowly pull away the reward. And I've seen that work short term with some students in some ways, but it never feels like it's totally free of costs. It feels like there's always kind of this feeling of we're still not really learning the things we want to learn and it still just doesn't feel completely right to me. Um, And I know that in the special education classrooms in my school, they rely really, really heavily on point cards and rewards with kind of this assumption that those students are less capable of understanding the reasons why we, we do things a certain way and that extrinsic motivation will help them kind of get on the path and and I just don't know. I'm not a special education teacher, and so I would never want to to presume that that I know something that they don't. But I do. I do wonder: is there a way we could completely pull behaviorism out, or are there still some special cases where it's just kind of needed in the short term? And I I still just don't even feel good saying it out loud because I just want to believe that there is a world where where we can completely get rid of that and nurture kids. But then I think, but if they're getting it at home all the time, is it possible to at school um, respond to them without behaviorism in an effective way for those students that have those intense patterns of dysregulation? That was kind of a jumble, but I think you understand my question. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And I think it's actually a perfect segue into the next talking point during this episode, which was how you think conscious parenting at home would impact the learning experience and teaching experience for everyone in the classroom. And before you actually answer it, I think that this is one kind of kind of the answer that I would propose to what what we're discussing in terms of is behaviorism necessary sometimes for some children that have only operated there. This is the only way they've been responded to. Um, it really does. Behaviorism leads to children relying on it and kind of not knowing how to operate outside of that system of control. Um, And in fact, the older that children get, the more and more we've relied on behaviorist tactics, the more they will actually start to implement them in their relationship, but directed toward us, the parent, which is why many people who have teenage children or I guess young young people who still call them children if they're like 14 or 15 I guess but teenagers right like they'll start to complain oh my gosh my children are you know manipulative or they're uh, so combative or defiant and well I mean these are all strategies that you have used on them for the last 14 years and now they're able to express themselves and exert their own uh free will as individuals and step out of that uh, control and power dynamic, of course, they're going to use the very skills that you presented to them and model to them. Um, but that's a slight tangent for the, the bigger picture. I think that I think that the real answer is that, you know, we, we have to help parents understand what is going to serve them, create more peaceful authentic, connected days as parents, what's going to help their children truly thrive, and what's ultimately going to 
better the entire environment. I mean, we, we sort of talked about this before recording the, the whole, again, like big picture zoom out of the impact of conscious parenting. If we have, if we have a child who has been treated with respect from infancy and treated like a whole person from infancy with regard to their point of view and, and always understanding that it matters to their caregivers, that their perspective is important and that they're seen and heard, there's really less need for uh, this sort of like intense, really uh, challenging behavior because our children aren't trying so hard to get their needs met, which means they spend much less time in their sympathetic nervous system and they're just feeling like regulated most of the time, right? So I think that, again, yeah, there's just, there's too many, there's so many layers to what I think about. And I think that it would be interesting to see what would happen. I don't know. I, I really don't know because I don't work as a teacher, but I think that one beautiful thing about the way that you even presented your perspective on that was that you were at least aware of the detrimental aspects of using behaviors tactics, even for the children that are so used to it as their conditioning um, and kind of trying to phase it out. And again, even noticing that they are, are still sort of like reliant upon it and unaware of why they're doing what they're doing, not having that uh, deeper understanding and awareness of like what what is actually benefiting them or like why they're doing what they're doing. Um, but I think that maybe, maybe that's part of the answer too. A, a teacher just simply having that deeper awareness around the impact of using those tactics and having the intention for them to sort of be at least a temporary, um, I guess, tactic to foster whatever it is that you actually need for the, the classroom to simply operate in a healthy, functional way. Um, but anyway, now that I've <laughs> covered all that, I would love for you to um, tell me your thoughts when it comes to how you think conscious parenting would affect the classroom, both for teachers and for their fellow students. Yeah. Um... Well, first, thank you for the thoughts you just shared that I, I think it'll be a lifelong journey for me as a teacher to figure out how to live up to all my ideals, but I appreciated your thoughts so much. Um, and then in regards to conscious parenting at home and how that impacts the classroom, um, I always think of the, the extreme examples first. Um, I mentioned that every year I've had a handful of students that have been frequently dysregulated um, and they become really intense sources of disruption. Um, and all of these students, I always become aware pretty quickly of some big things happening at home um, that make it seem like it'd be pretty difficult for them to have a sense of security and connection with their caregivers at home. And so it seems like there's this very clear link between intense dysregulation at school and a lack of security at home. And the school where I teach has a lot of families that I think the parents need to, they, they have jobs where they, they're working all day. And so I think a lot of these kids are alone a lot of the time. Um, or I, I just feel that parents are always doing the best that they can, which I know you believe too. Um, 
But I think that a lot of these kids just aren't getting their needs met at home. And so they come to school and they're not ready to learn. And it, it disrupts the classroom so much because we're spending time helping one student to calm down and the other students are noticing and observing and not working on their, their work, but they're instead focusing on the student's intense dysregulation um, which could be a positive learning experience to some degree as they as they see a teacher model how to respond to that. But I think there are more negative effects. Um, I have one student this year that we've kind of had a roller coaster ride with um, that I became aware of some abuse happening at home. And um, and we've been kind of on this really interesting ride of trying to figure out how to communicate with parents, which is my responsibility as a teacher um, about the behavior that's happening at school while still trying to keep this child safe and try to help her regulate her behavior at school. Um, and I had some students that were starting to mimic her defiance and stomping their feet when when there was an activity they didn't want to do because that's what she did. And so it just affects the classroom so much. Um, and what we've made really, really awesome progress. This student has um, really learned a lot of skills for, for regulation. Um, but the number one thing that I've noticed that has helped is when I'm able to come over to her and I ask if she wants a hug and she always, almost always will um, accept a hug and then she'll just cry in my arms for about a minute or two minutes. And then she's able to calm herself down and she's able to get back to work most of the time. Um, and I think sometimes we have this, this fantasy that we can teach kids to just regulate their own emotions and that that's all we need to do. But I think in reality, there is a, a physiological need for co-regulation. And if students are not getting that at home, if they don't have an adult um, that can be physically and emotionally close to them when they are distressed, then those needs are going to come out throughout the day. And as a caregiver, I can provide that, but I can't necessarily fill in the gaps that are not happening at home. I can help to mitigate it a little bit, but I just think nothing can replace um, an available loving parent. So it, I think that's, that's the answer of how conscious parenting could help, that if students feel safe and loved in their home life, then they will be able to thrive at school they won't need so much time taken out of the school day to help fill in those gaps emotionally. They will be so much more ready to learn. And that affects all the other students and it affects the teacher. Um, when those days happen, I that's all I want is to help that student meet her needs. But I do go home feeling tired and sometimes I go home crying because I've absorbed that emotion during the day. And it makes me question, how much longer can I, can I do this? Is this a sustainable job for me to every day be, you know, responding to kids that are defiant and dysregulated? And I, I want to help them so much. I want to be there for them. But it does sometimes feel like, is this sustainable? Am I entering into compassion fatigue where I don't have much more to give? Um, so it puts a big strain emotionally on teachers and on the other kids as well. So Conscious parenting um, would would provide that foundation that kids need to be able to thrive at school. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. 
one of the things that stood out to me so much about the specific example that you gave is that someone listening to this podcast who is still wrestling with the concept of conscious parenting, not really having had that epiphany or aha moment around the distinction between this and warmly authoritarian parenting, where we're still operating in the system of control, where we still have this subconscious understanding of the child being sort of an object that we we need to exert our dominance over all the time, you know, like, because I said so dynamic or that, but it's for your own good because I'm a loving parent who knows what's best for you, right? And um, I often refer to that as like the Disney Channel parent or the Full House parent. <laughs> and some people really are like, I just don't see what's wrong with that. And again, it's, it's not that people are going to uh, just be suffering. You know, a lot of these children raised in a warmly authoritarian household, which is the majority of people, most people utilize behaviorist tactics, especially the warm and fuzzy ones, you know, bribery and different forms of manipulation or, or subtle, uh, sad ones, like a little bit of shame and guilt here and there, a little bit of passive aggression every day. It's okay. You're right. Like it's no big deal. We just got to get kids to do what we want them to do when we want them to do it. Um, and I think that, First of all, even when we use the expression defiant, I think sometimes when we get into that mode of labeling the child as the problem, uh, kind of diagnosing them as the issue, we don't have the time to actually get curious about behavior. Um, and so something that's more obvious, like what you're explaining, you know, someone that is on the extreme end uh, is... You know, and that's obviously creating a disruption that is obviously dysregulated on a you know, regular basis. Um, that might seem to somebody that, again, hasn't really put the dots together when it comes to the difference between this conscious parenting concept and what is most commonly practiced. They might be like, well, that doesn't you know, apply to my child. Like my child isn't, I'm not a conscious parent necessarily, and like my child isn't causing a disruption. They're not being abused and unable to express themselves. Um, so I think it's important also to to point out some of the subtle differences between, um, like I guess, the results. A lot of fear-based people are really focused on what's what's the goal in mind. What's what are the results? People often ask me, "Does this actually work?" or "This won't work." when they become teenagers, I get responses like that often. <laughs> and I'm always like, well, what is the goal? What, is, what do you mean by does this philosophy work? And I think in a classroom setting, one thing that I would love to know if, if you notice um, with any children that are clearly getting their needs met in a different way, like really being seen on a deeper level, really understood, listened to. Um, one thing that I noticed with my own son I can't really quite use my daughter as an example. She's only 18 months old. But one thing I do notice with my son is that he is much more responsive to someone that he knows really values his point of view, like really listens to his perspective and isn't going to make him feel like an inconvenience in any sort of way, like isn't annoyed by his two cents, you know, like I actually just consider it all the time and let him weigh in on things even if you know it's it is inconvenient <laughs> I don't want him to ever feel that way um I would I would be interested to know 
I just, I just feel like in a classroom setting, in fact, actually, before I keep going or before I have you respond, I, I kind of want to give an example for anyone listening. So my son, and I talked to Lydia about this, uh, told me about his teacher being dysregulated and having a really hard time kind of frequently yelling at the class. And um, I noticed when he talks about this, that he has kind of a different sort of emotional resilience. He doesn't take her behavior personally, sort of like how I've never taken his behavior personally. And he's also able to become curious about her behavior, just like I have always been with him and with my daughter, um, which I find to be uh, really like a I mean, a high indication of emotional intelligence and um, pretty impressive because it's, it's a hard practice for us even as adults, right, sometimes. Um, so when he was telling me the first time about his teacher um, shouting at the students or one particular student, he just described it as like, she's just having a really hard time today. And um, I think she was really frustrated. You know, just even the way he described her experience was kind of compassionate and even to this day because obviously things some of the things that he's told me make me uncomfortable with how passionate I am about how we how we treat children and yet um, I'm, I'm so impressed by that aspect of the impact of conscious parenting you know the fact that even my own son is not judgmental of someone who's having a hard time, even if it's an adult person, he's like curious about it and kind of perplexed by it because it's not something he really sees um, at home or experiences. But even still, I, and I ask him like, you know, is that hard or scary or um, does that make you uncomfortable? And, and he's almost like, not really. I mean, I just think she's just having a hard time. She gets really frustrated and he can really identify her perspective and her needs. And it's one thing that I've really loved about my journey as a conscious parent, um, that constant, and it's not like perfect because it's not about obedience, um, but that mutual needs being met and understood from from such an, an early age when we're in this true relationship dynamic versus a control dynamic. Um, I think that's that's a really interesting aspect of conscious parenting in the classroom setting, you know, how my son even views the difficult moments, even from his peers, you know, like they're not bad. They're just really having a hard time sitting still. <laughs> or that's something he told me recently about um, one of his peers or uh, because some children were calling one of his fellow students bad, saying they were a bad kid. He's like, he's really not bad. He just has a hard time not hugging people. He has a hard time sitting still. <laughs> So I just love, I love that aspect of it, but I also love that I just feel like if, if you're someone that's on the fence about, you know, implementing conscious parenting, you might consider just the emotional intelligence and that high self-esteem that's going to help any student thrive in the classroom and also really help the teacher by having somebody that's super aware and is, is doing certain behavior because they just know it makes sense. I think sometimes when um, we have people that resort to shame and criticism and just kind of always looking for what their child is doing wrong, like always looking to correct them as opposed to always looking to connect with them, uh, the child never actually really learns like what we were mentioning earlier. What's, what's the reasoning behind the behavior? They don't even really even know to think critically and ask those questions because 
again, they're not really operating from from that place. Their, their brain is literally working on overdrive, um, anticipating big reaction, big responses, anticipating shame, and sort of cultivating over time compounded low self-esteem. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what parenting looks like at home in my students' lives, but I can see um, some of the parents that that uh, approach their parenting with a lot of love and respect, which I think mm. is obviously the core of conscious parenting. And the students that, just some of the connections I've seen, some of the students that I, I can observe just from the, the, the short, you know, the few short interactions I have with parents, some of these students, um, I would say, definitely have a greater sense of self and kind of a sense of responsibility for who they are and what they do and what they learn. They are less timid in asking questions when they don't understand something because they're not waiting for a teacher to tell them um, what's okay and what's not okay. They just know that it's their responsibility to get clarification, to be able to do what they need to do. Um, another student I'm thinking of is super, like you were saying about Donovan, super emotionally aware of other students and and even of me and is always kind of noticing when someone needs a hug or needs a friend to talk to. And I see her parents give her so much love all the time. Um, and thinking of past years, I, I can think of a lot of students who just were really self-motivated and just were able to get their work done and didn't need a lot of reminders, um, a lot of support um, as far as self-management goes of, of getting your work done. They just were ready to go because they knew what they needed to do and they had the skills and they knew that if they didn't know what to do, they could ask me. So it just seems like the, the students that were self-motivated and emotionally intelligent and confident, um, it seemed like in general, there was always a, a really loving parent at home. Amazing. Um, I, I wrote here that we should talk a little bit about that curiosity and viewing behavior as communication, but I think we've really covered that in a lot of different ways. Um, so I wanted to talk briefly about expectations and development, because mm -hmm. this is something that I think comes up in school a lot, just because the classroom has, the show must go on, <laughs> like the classroom has to function and people need to sit down and they need to be quiet and listen. Um, and sometimes there's no outdoor time, at least, I mean, I know you're in Utah, so you understand the, the Midwest lifestyle as well, <laughs> probably like, you know, kids having all this time cooped up indoors um, for obviously months at a time, but then of course during the day as well. Um, what, what would you say about the expectations that we have um, on students as young as eight years old, like you're teaching or seven years old and developmental appropriateness as it pertains to behaviorist tactics and in the classroom and, and what's, um, I guess, like what's working. Yeah, um, I, I definitely feel that public school systems are on the rigid side um, when it comes to students' development. Um, and it is so hard to find a way to meet everyone where they're at developmentally. Um, I know that at least in terms of movement, I think teachers are, are pretty aware of the need for um, movement during the day and frequent movement breaks and frequent chatting breaks. And something I love to do um, instead of having some pre-planned break that I pick 
I'll kind of talk to the students and say, what does it feel like we need? Um, do we need a dance break? Do we need a game? Do we need a chatting break? Or sometimes I'll just let them pick what they need and I'll say, check in with your body, your heart, and your mind um, and see if you need a drink or a bathroom break or a snack from your backpack or to chat with a friend or draw a picture. Um, and I think as a whole, teachers are are usually aware that students do need to move a lot, but I still feel like there's so much sitting that's expected. Um, and as far as how, how we talk about expectations, I, I really like to to let my students know that they can always ask me if they feel like they need something different. Um, if they feel like there's a friend that they want to move by, then they can raise their hand and ask me. And if they feel that will help them work better, then they're welcome to ask me for that or move and sit in a different place in the classroom. Um, but the, the goal is always that we can be on task and be doing our work and being kind to others. And so I like to kind of provide a, a core framework of these are the things that need to happen and then kind of show what the flexible areas are. You can stand at your desk. You can sit in this place. I know some teachers have really great different flexible seating options or they have different kind of balls you can sit on. I don't have any of those right now, but I at least like my students to know that they could sit somewhere else. Um, and there's, I, I, I think it's really powerful for students to know there are some core things we need to do, but I need to be in charge of listening to what the way I need to do it. Um, and if it's not working for me, then I need to ask my teacher for, for some help to find a different way to do it. And as a teacher, I'm trying to look and see if I can help students um, help point them in the direction of, oh, it seems like this person you're sitting by is really exciting for you to talk to. So why don't you make plans to play at recess together because you love that person, but it seems like it's not helping you get your work done. And um, so I try to help point them in the right direction, but ultimately I want them to become kind of masters of their own uh, needs in the sense that they can recognize what they need to fulfill the, the core requirements, the core expectations of the classroom. That's awesome. And honestly, I loved your your verbiage there. I think that was a perfect example for anybody listening who is working with children, whether they're a teacher or a parent, um, because it, it's not resorting to shame. It's not, we're not judging the child for the behavior and making it a character flaw. And this is a perfect way actually to sort of uh, wrap up this, this episode, because I wanted to talk about one of my favorite quotes um, that Gabor Mate says, and that's children learn best when they like their teacher and when they think their teacher likes them. And I think using language like you just used in your example, where we're not using shame and we're not guilting children or criticizing them or even judging them on a subconscious level, we're simply saying like, hmm, objectively, what's not working here? how can I help you? Mm, this might be a great plan. It's it's refraining from all of the yucky stuff and simply focusing on the solution. And I think that that allows you to keep this like beautiful relationship alive with students as opposed to getting into this like emotionally dysregulated state. And it's, it is one thing that I wanted to talk about. I know I briefly mentioned it and how I'm really grateful that my son is um, apparently, you know, 
I wouldn't say unbothered by when that when those kind of circumstances arise in his classroom. Um, but I, I will say that I think that he handles it with a lot of emotional maturity. But what would you say about the culture in um, the school that you've worked in, let's say, when it comes to the normalization of getting dysregulated with students? Yeah, I think thinking about the school where I work, I, I don't see a, a loss of control in the adults super often. But what I do see is kind of a normalization of um, just a lack of kindness and compassion and warmth towards kids. I think a lot of adults feel that that is the right way, the most helpful way to, to do it. And that makes me pretty sad because I love that quote that you said, children learn best when they like their teacher and think they te- their teacher likes them. I think if you said that to any teacher, they would say, of course that's true. But again, there has been this normalization of well, if kids aren't behaving correctly, you have to you have to make it hurt a little bit. You have to give them that emotional feedback so that they feel bad about their behavior. Um, and I, I just can't imagine anyone that that statement isn't true for. Um, I can't I can't think of a child coming to school and thriving without feeling loved by their teacher and having a love for their teacher. And not to mention that we're modeling really great relationship skills when we love our students, when we're kind to them. I see my students treating each other the way that I treat them. I see them giving each other hugs and giving each other kind feedback and kind compliments and asking what's wrong when somebody's not feeling good. And and that is such beautiful feedback for me to see as a teacher. And so for that reason, but even greater for the reason of wanting children to feel safe and feel loved, um, I, I feel that it's one of my most important duties as a teacher to communicate that I love my students. And when I can see that they feel that, that is one of the most fulfilling and enlivening things to experience as a teacher. And sometimes I get the love back and that's really beautiful. And sometimes I don't visibly get it back, and and I still know that it's it's energy well spent, that it's the right thing for me to do, that it's what the kids need from me. So beautiful, and again, so reassuring to know that there are so many people, even if um, they are sort of herding the children like cattle, <laughs> there's actually someone at my son's school that just has gotten, I think it just has become the norm to speak in a way that I'm just like, I don't think you would speak to anyone that way, but talks to the children, like rounding up a couple of dogs in in the large field (laughs) um, and just seems so angry. It seems so bothered and upset and inconvenienced by the children. And I, I can't help but wonder at what point that became the best strategy in her back pocket. It's almost like completely unnecessary, especially if you already have a whistle. Like people hear you. (laughs) You don't also have to shout at people and like yell at people. Um, You can totally, you know, talk to people with kindness and respect and urgency at the same time. And I kind of wanted to point that out because I want, what I want really with all of my work is for people to simply be able to uh, let their guard down one, especially if it's new information, but also let their guard down and then move into a state of awareness where they can really genuinely take an objective step back and look at themselves, look at their own behavior, reactions, responses, and say, 
hmm, are there any adjustments that I could make? Do I send a message? And whether you, you know, everyone is well-intentioned. If you, I'm, I'm assuming, if you go into teaching, you go into it with this like pure-hearted intention of, I love kids. I want to help kids. I, I think this job sounds lovely and enriching, right? Like, I don't think anybody's like, oh my gosh, I can't stand kids. Better go become a teacher. I mean, that's just, that's silly, right? So I know that anyone listening that has worked as a teacher is working currently in the school system, um, loves kids and loves their students and and wants the best for them and has the best uh, intentions. But sometimes along the way, when we see certain behavior normalized, we just kind of like fall in line. We're like, oh yeah, that's just what you got to do. You got to yell. You got to use a specific tone. You got to get people in line um but i want you to build that muscle of awareness and ask like is could i shift anything that i'm currently doing and this applies to parents as well are you talking to your children are you talking at your children i mean and you can even take it a step further and apply this to any relationship or how often are you talking to your spouse versus at them right um i think that it's just an important thing that we're developing that awareness in every aspect of our life, but especially in a school environment, I think it's it's a beautiful thing to start to bring some attention to because I think sometimes, again, everyone is just so well-intentioned, but we just sort of lose sight because you're in survival mode and you're depleted and working so hard and meeting the needs of so many people, young or a little bit older. Um, and, you know, it's just like when you're pouring from a slightly <laughs> less than full cup, um, sometimes certain things that you wouldn't want to go out the window go out the window. So just developing that awareness and, and moving into that space of, man, like do even if even if you do agree, like you said, I don't know who that wouldn't be true for the statement of children learn best when they like their teacher and they think their teacher likes them. But how often, again, when we utilize behaviorist measures, do we send the message, I don't like you right now, unless you are what I want you to be, or unless you behave the way I want you to behave, then I will like you. Even conditional love toward students, it's not just relevant in the parent-child relationship, but even conditional love toward students is very loud and clear. We are so receptive and, and aware of what we have to do to be worthy of connection and worthy of someone's time and energy and love. So I, I would really encourage anyone working with children, it doesn't just have to be in a formal classroom setting, even if you're working in a Sunday school class or um, a daycare, childcare center, or maybe you babysit children or a nanny, um, anyone working with children, I would just really encourage you to think about that, that statement and ask yourself, like, what is the message that I'm sending? What am I teaching with the way that I respond and react? Um, and, you know, how, how do I think people feel uh, based on my responses and the way that I show up. So, yeah, so is there anything that you'd like to add in terms of 
you know, what it's like to be a teacher today, um, what you think about conscious teaching, um, where you see it going. Um, I definitely feel like we have a long way to go. And I've thought a lot about how public school systems can change. And I don't, I don't have a lot of answers. But what I do know is that part of the change of big systems seems to be some people leaving and some people staying. And to be honest, it's difficult for me to imagine a world where I stay my whole life in public school systems. And um, so I, I already am kind of exploring what my other school systems look like, um, because I think that we are so we are still really far away in our public school systems from conscious teaching becoming a top-down kind of thing. I think there's space for individual teachers to enter the system and implement that as much as they can on an individual classroom level, like I'm trying to do. But I think as far as the system um, making space for that itself, I think we are really far away from that. Um, And I, I know so many teachers that have left after just a few years of teaching because of the really intense emotional load um, because there are so many students that come so dysregulated every day and it seems like the answer always kind of points back to the home and to parenting and so I I don't know what public school systems can do to you know mitigate things that aren't happening at home but I know that there there are changes that could happen I don't know what they are I, I wish I had a big enough picture to envision a perfect system Um, But I am really curious about other countries and how they do it and other systems within the U.S. I'm I'm looking at Waldorf schools because it seems like there's a lot of a lot of different um, paradigms that might be uh, just maybe a little bit more healthy for students and teachers. And I still have so much faith and love for public school system, the public school system, because it's what's right there available for everyone. And I want it to succeed so much. Um, and the years that I've spent in it have been, uh, I've done it because I, I have felt so deeply that it is the right place for me to be and that these students are, are worth every, every moment of love, um, and effort that I spend on them. And I, I want it to succeed so much, but, um, I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could end on like a more hopeful note, but I, I don't really know kind of where it's headed. And I, I think it just it's going to be up to parents and individual teachers to to keep trying to bring more and more consciousness into it. And that's exactly why I wanted to record this episode. I think that I my mission is really to empower parents and empower anyone that loves children and wants them to have a more respected existence in general. Um, and I think that sometimes we need to hear the honest truth about the current circumstance and and do so again with compassion like we've done this whole episode um and i honestly kind of want to end on something that i think is a perfect beautiful reminder that it really in my opinion takes one person to totally transform a child's life i think if you're even listening in the car or at home the gym, you can envision one person that was in your life. It might have been a teacher. It might have only been a teacher or a coach or someone that was some sort of mentor for you through the public school system specifically that 
made you feel important, that made you feel special to talk to, or that saw your uniqueness, saw your special gifts, or saw whatever it was, your spark and your sunshine, right? They made that uh, very obvious to you. And, and wow, what a difference that makes for somebody's self-esteem, for their confidence. I know that I can literally picture specific people that were in my life as a public school student that made an incredible impact on the way that I show up in my day-to-day life today. They, as uh, Mr. Rogers said in one of his amazing speeches, you know, he, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Lydia, but he uh, asks everybody to close their eyes and um, think about every person that has loved them into being. And he just sets the timer and has everybody do that. And, you know, there's like not a dry eye in the house because even just one person that has loved you into being is so impactful. So while we might be (laughs) discouraged about, you know, the public education system as a whole or just school in general and how it's steeped in behaviorism, my son attends private school and it is the same. I mean, I've given personal examples of things that I'm uncomfortable with, right? And, um, you know, there is, there is a lot to be done, a lot of work to be done, but I think that it is so reassuring to remind yourself that it just takes one person, let alone if you yourself are parenting your children with so much compassion and unconditional love and that constant messaging that you are, you are so seen. I want to hear what you have to say. What matters to you matters to me. Um, and hopefully we or teachers like you will be the faces that come to mind if they're ever asked that question. Who loved you into being? Who made you feel important when it comes up as an adult person? Thank you so much, Lydia, for joining me today and all of your amazing insight and all of the work that you're doing. It's super moving for me to hear directly um, and gives me so much hope for the direction of education, especially here in the U.S. Thank you so much. It was so nice to hear all your thoughts as well. Thank you so much. And if anybody's interested in diving deeper into the conscious parenting philosophy, the reparenting process, check out my online course at themellowmama.org. I've just produced some new digital products that I think you'll really love if you're ever feeling super dysregulated. Even if you don't have children, you are a teacher who just needs a minute to have somebody like right there on your shoulder to help you reset your nervous system, to come back to a sense of calm and presence and confidence. They're called Mellow Moments and there's so many different ones to choose from. I highly encourage you to check them out, especially if you're at home with your children during the day and you start to feel that lonely feeling of like, man, I am just kind of emotionally tapped out, sort of like we were talking about with teachers in the classroom. I think they're an amazing, super duper affordable resource, and I can't wait for all of you to have access to them. Obviously, follow me on Instagram at Mama, TikTok, Mama underscore, and at my YouTube channel. Um, And I do have a personal goal that I've been sharing, which will be fun for you to hear too, Lydia, but I'm trying to get this podcast in the top 10 parenting podcasts on Apple and Spotify podcasts. So if you love this podcast or if you love this specific episode or another episode, please screenshot while you listen, share it, tag me, and I will totally share it too. I just appreciate all of you so much for listening. Hope you have a beautiful, peaceful day, and I will see you on the next episode.